Welcome back, everybody. This is week 44 of Creative Come Follow Me for the Old Testament. And this week, we are jumping into Ezekiel. So he's one of those contemporary prophets of Jeremiah's that we spoke about last week. So where Lehi is heading off to the New World, and Jeremiah ends up staying in Jerusalem to watch the destruction. Ezekiel's job is to head into Babylon, and he will teach exclusively those Jews who are in exile. He doesn't necessarily want to be there. He gets hauled away and is in bondage just like all those other Jews, and he will stay there for for as, as long as we know is like his whole lifetime. I don't know exactly how his life ends, but we don't have any record of Ezekiel coming out of Babylon. So this will be his territory. And it's a tough calling. Like every one of these prophets, Lehi had his version of hard. Jeremiah has his version of hard. Daniel will too. All of these prophets have their own hard. And Ezekiel's hard will be to speak to a people who should be learning from their wrong choices and are not. But what I love about Ezekiel and what I'd never realized before is I think a big piece of his work is to motivate and excite the next generation. Kind of like we saw with Moses. Remember when they they were too scared to go into the promised land and so they got kind of stuck in the wilderness and he had to wait till all of them died off? I wonder if a little bit of that is happening here, that there are people who, that Ezekiel is called not just to teach those who are now in bondage up in Babylon, but to teach the next generation and the next, because he'll be a prophet for a long time. And his message, the visual that kept coming to my mind is, if you've ever seen one of those Hollywood movies where a really great teacher comes to a really hard school, and over the course of the movie, they turn things around and they motivate the students, and there's an epic change in the students' hearts and in the test scores, and that's Ezekiel to me. He is someone who is there to motivate the next generation, because within 70 years, they get to come back. So I always picture Ezekiel as, you know, the planter of hope for the revolutionary kids who will grow up and want to come home. The Esthers, the Ezras, the Nehemiahs, who go to sleep with bedtime stories about the gathering happening, and then live to make it happen. So that's what I want you to think of when you think of Ezekiel. At least that's what helped me this week. He is a, he is someone who speaks of truth. He's also someone who speaks to those who are in struggle because of their own choices. And I think where each and every one of us oftentimes end up in struggle because of our own choices or the choices of those around us, we need leadership, we need guidance, we need to know how to get back on the road, the easier road. And Ezekiel will do all of that for us. So I promise you're going to love his message. Grab your scriptures, grab your notes. You guys, let's get started. These first few chapters of Ezekiel are all about his call. So he's already in exile in Babylon, and he's going to have his call. And you can almost break it into two parts. It actually sort of reminds me of a missionary's call, because in this first part, it's this grand vision, and it's strange, and I'll explain all of that in a minute, but it almost reminds me of when a missionary is opening that email, you know, in front of all the friends and family, and everybody cheers, and it's so exciting. And then there's phase two of the call, where you actually figure out where that place is, and you realize how hard it's going to be. That's sort of what happens with Ezekiel in these first two chapters. So in chapter one, it's the grand opening, and he sees the Lord, but it's in a really strange way. So I'm just going to warn you, when you go into chapter one, you're going to be a little bit blindsided. <laughs> and here's how I would help you with this. Do you guys remember when we were talking about the Doctrine and Covenants, and I taught you the analogy of the um, electrical cord? So you know how if you ever have like a thick, you know, construction grade extension cord, if you grab that extension cord at a place where there is no rubber sheath, you know, if you have one of those cords for a long time and sometimes they're a little battered and you might grab that cord and you can feel a shock. It's not because the electricity is bad. It's not because it was intended to be scary. It's because you don't have that coating to protect you from it. For me, whenever I am reading doctrine or scripture and it's shocking to me or even scary to me, that's how I know there must be some coding that's missing. The coding to me is the context. In the Doctrine and Covenants, it meant I needed to understand more about the historical setting. I needed to know more about the personalities of the people involved. There's always context that I'm missing. That's what's happening in one. Because basically, Ezekiel is describing a vision for us, and we don't have the frame of reference. He's trying to put you know, immortal kind of eternal experiences into mortal words, and it's hard. And honestly, we just don't know enough about his his life situation to know what he is seeing. So if you see or read something that you're like, what? What is? Don't 
don't stress or don't focus too much on the details. Trust that if you're feeling a shock, it probably means there's context that you're missing. Some of that context has been revealed and we'll get pieces of it from Joseph Smith, especially because a lot of this vision sounds sort of similar to what we read with John the Revelator. So some of the comparisons can be drawn there. Some of it just simply isn't revealed. And what the Lord teaches, in fact, you can see this in the notes, is you're not accountable for things that aren't revealed. <laughs> so don't, don't worry too much. In fact, one of my favorite quotes, this is also in the notes, but it's from Wilford Woodruff. And he said, when it comes to dreams and visions, you don't necessarily need to worry. I'm not quoting. This is a paraphrase, but you don't need to worry so much about the details and what each thing means. What you're trying to gain is the principle. And for me, the principle of chapter one is all about how God is with his people, whether they are in Jerusalem in a time of glory and brightness, like when David was on the throne, or in exile in Babylon when everything's a mess and the temple is getting destroyed, he is with them. And let me show you why I think that's what it's saying. Basically, you're going to see this dream play out. You'll see that he's up among the captives, that's in verse 1, and then he talks about this brightness. Like many of the prophetic sweeping visions that we've studied in all these years, it begins with brightness. Do you remember when Joseph Smith talked about the first vision and the brightness that he thought would catch the trees on fire? That's the kind of brightness I think Ezekiel's trying to articulate. And then he talks about what comes with the brightness. So he sees creatures. They call them creatures because we don't know. It almost sounds like a hybrid of men and beasts. And again, I wouldn't get too fixated on what each symbol means because frankly, we don't know. Um, but I would I would try to get the overarching message. These creatures come, basically Ezekiel is going to have an experience where he encounters the throne of God. But the first thing he sees is these, these four creatures that each have four faces and they have wings and they move in a unity and harmony that is powerful to him. It teaches him about what angelic beings are like. I think that's what we're supposed to learn. He also talks about how there's an appearance of lamps and fire and coals. In fact, the more I read this chapter, I started, I think it's, I think it's because we built that printable tabernacle, you guys. Uh, you know, when we were making the printable and I had to glue and cut each part, now I know those parts so well because I had to create them on the printable that when I started reading these, there were so many little bits of the tabernacle woven into these verses. You see things about wings, you see things about lamps, you see things about brightness, even the kind of metal that it's bronze and sparkling. And there were so many tabernacle references that I just couldn't set it aside. And he talks about wheels and eyes. And Joseph Smith taught us in DNC 77 that whenever you, at least when John the Revelator saw a being that had many eyes, what it meant was it was full of knowledge. And a being that had wings meant that it had agency and the power to act. All these scripture references are in the notes, but what I loved about this visual is basically what he's teaching us is these angelic beings who are surrounding the throne of God are not just sheep. <laughs> they are not all exactly the same. They have individuality and power, and they have intelligence, profound intelligence, and where they choose to be is with God. And not just with God, but in harmony with God and in harmony with those around them. That, to me, is what Zion is like. That's what I picture heaven like, that we're all unique and keep our personalities and our differences, but we choose to be in harmony with God, which makes us in harmony with each other. Not all playing the same note, but creating this beautiful harmony. So picture that as you go into this very weird chapter. <laughs> it really helped my brain to understand it. But I think essentially what the Lord is trying to teach them, He he will, Ezekiel will see all these creatures first, and then he's going to see the firmament, these heavens that are sapphire-like and sparkling, and then above that, he's going to see the throne of God, and he'll actually see the likeness of a man. That's the same critical doctrine that the Lord has taught to so many other prophets, you know, Enoch and Noah and Moses. They see God as a man and a likeness like themselves, and it's glorious. And, and Ezekiel can't capture it with words. So, if you look in 26, he talks about the likeness of the throne was the likeness of the appearance of a man upon, upon it. And in 27, the appearance of fire round about within it, like both in it and around it. And then in 28, as the appearance of the bow or a rainbow that is in the cloud of the day of the rain. So, like this is, he's trying to capture the beauty and the magnificence of God. And it's a God who is in the likeness that he is in. That is profound 
firsthand witness of what the character and nature of God is, and Ezekiel's getting it right up front. And so naturally, the reaction of Ezekiel is he falls flat on his face. <laughs> well, I think Ezekiel's reaction is entirely appropriate given the glory he's beholding. The Lord doesn't want him to stay there. He invites him to stand. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he said, And he said unto me, this being, that likeness, that Lord that he's seeing, Son of man, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. There is such warmth and intimacy. Even calling him the Son of Man, that's a phrase that they'll use for Jesus Christ in the New Testament often, but it, it just means in this situation with Ezekiel, the Lord calls him that to say you're basically a mouthpiece to men. You can go in the Bible dictionary and learn a lot more, but it's this warmth, right? It's a man speaking to his friend, like we've seen the Lord interact with so many other prophets. He he wants him to understand who he is, who Ezekiel is, and that's why he has him stand and speak to him. And then the Spirit enters in. This feels like Moses to me, where he has some kind of experience where he can be in the presence of God and hear his voice. And then in three, it says, And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation. So remember when I told you that I feel like this is the second part of opening your call? <laughs> There's that phase where you're really excited and you're like, Yes, my nephew, I remember him opening his call to Ghana, and we were all so excited because it sounded so adventurous. And then there's the days afterwards where my sister Lisa learns all about the malaria outbreaks and all the, all the scary things that happen in Ghana. That's what's happening to Ezekiel. He's starting to appreciate how hard his mission is going to be because they're not going to want to hear him. So the Lord teaches him about their rebellion of the children of Israel, that even though they are already in bondage and they're already suffering the consequences of their choices, their hearts aren't going to soften for a while. And so he invites him not to be afraid. For me, this is the power punch of this chapter. It's around 6, 7, and 8. He says, And thou, son of men, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words. Though there be, you be among briars and thorns and scorpions, like he's he's telling him how hard this mission is going to be, and he's saying, "Don't be afraid. Um, I'm I'm with you." He says, "Speak my words unto them." I think there is so much power in that invitation. That the reason we don't need to be afraid is not because Ghana's not scary. It's because you're going there to speak His words, and when you speak His words, you'll be endowed with His power. That's the promise that Ezekiel is getting. He doesn't need to be afraid. Um, he doesn't have to be dismayed. He doesn't have to worry about their words or their looks. He just needs to move forward. And what I think is really powerful is at the very end of this chapter, he tells you how to not be afraid. And the way he teaches it is so weird and so fun that I couldn't resist making an object lesson about this, but he basically invites him to consume his word. He invites him to eat a scroll that has his word on it. These are words of lamentation and woe, because that's going to be a lot of Ezekiel's message. It's going to be a lot of, you caused this with your sin. You're in dire straits, and so he has to consume it. The reason I think that applies to our missionaries is that's basically to me like when the Lord says, no matter how hard your mission is going to be and how many people convert, maybe none, the change that will happen in your heart will be worth it if you consume my word. If you live on these principles and these doctrines for these years and you change, your mission will have been worth it. So that's how he sets the stage for Ezekiel. He invites him to change. He invites him to take God's word and to put it into his heart, into his body, let it become part of him so that no matter what happens next, he can change. And that's a powerful invitation. The mission call opening continues in chapter three. This is where you see that the the book that he was asked to consume, this book or scroll that's full of lamentation and woe, actually tastes sweet. And I love this piece of Ezekiel's story. He seems surprised by it. It's different than what happens with John in Revelation. This is, it tastes like honey. In fact, it's you see it in verse 3. Then I did eat it, and it was in my mouth, and it was as honey for sweetness. He hasn't even had a chance to digest it yet. And again, I don't know if this is literal or figurative, but I loved this piece. As soon as he puts it in his mouth, he tastes sweetness. Isn't that great? I feel like that happens with the gospel. As soon as we take a particular doctrine, even one that we might be skeptical about, something that the prophet has taught us, something we learn in scripture, and we let it just get in our mouth, we just take it in, there is an initial sweetness. There is a, you know, that same harmony that happens with the light of Christ that's in us. It, it makes things taste sweet. And I think that's what happens with missionaries. I think it happens with us. Whenever we decide to 
take on this challenge from God, when he gives us an invitation to experiment upon the word. That's basically what's happening with, with this tasting of the book. As soon as we do it, there is sweetness that comes. It doesn't mean the task is easier, but there is an initial sweetness that I think will hold Ezekiel. And then the Lord boosts him up. So to me, this is when like a mom and a dad, after everyone else has left and after you've researched a little bit about Ghana, this is when you can see the missionary starting to panic. And so your mom and your dad or whoever will come and buoy you up to say, you're ready for this. You've been prepping for this your whole life. Let me show you how ready you are. That's what happens with the Lord. So around eight, he says, behold, I've made thy face strong against their faces. In nine, as an adamant harder than flint have I made thy forehead. He's basically saying, you have a thick skin. I have designed you to be able to do this work. Remember, whom the Lord calls, he qualifies. And that's the promise Ezekiel is going to have to rest on, that he's going to make it. It reminded me of our study of the brother of Jared in the Book of Mormon. Remember how I taught you about, Michael Wilcox taught me about being tight like a dish, and that idea of you're going to have to be built tight like a dish so that you can withstand the waves, because this isn't supposed to be a pleasure voyage. <laughs> it's supposed to be this raucous, you know, beast-filled sea that you're going to turn and toss in. But he needs you to get where you need to go quickly, so he built you tight like a dish. That's basically what he's teaching Ezekiel. Your forehead was made strong. Your heart is strong. You can withstand all the blows that are going to come at you. Trust me. It just sounds like a missionary parent to me. He promises that he will be with them. Thus saith the Lord God. For This is in verse 11. He says, Thus saith the Lord God, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear. Meaning, Ezekiel, it doesn't matter to me what the results are. You're just supposed to teach. You're just supposed to preach and invite people to repent. And don't worry whether they listen or they don't listen. Just speak. And that's important to understand for when you flip the page. So when you flip over, you can see that Ezekiel struggles a little bit. <laughs> or maybe he's just awestruck. I'm not sure. But basically, he hears a voice and a sound of great rushing like we've heard in other visions. And then the vision closes and he's left to himself. And that is scary. I don't know if you've ever walked out of a bishop's office or a stake president's office with a new calling. And although you accepted it in the room, as soon as you walk out, you're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to go. That's how I picture Ezekiel right now, because he he's just kind of awestruck at everything that's just happened. Remember, you guys, he's like somewhere between 25 and 30, and he's in a foreign land, and this is a lot. And so he sits for seven days. So if you look in verse 15, it says, I sat where they sat and I remained there astonished among them for seven days. This to me is the brother of Jared spending four years on the beach. Remember, like there is, there, there is this time where he just doesn't quite know how to move, how to act. And I feel like all of us feel that when we get an invitation to do something scary from the Lord. But I love that the Lord doesn't leave him there the same way he didn't leave the brother of Jared on the beach. He comes to Ezekiel. So in 17, he comes to him and says, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. He's basically saying like, hey, hey, I gave you a job. <laughs> like Your job as a watchman, a watchman is someone who stands on a tower and their job is to tell us if the city is going to get destroyed. You know, if you can see it, an impending army coming. They have the same thing in vineyards and with flocks of sheep. Like they are, they are on guard, which means... If Ezekiel is sitting astonished somewhere, no one is watching after the sheep. <laughs> and so the Lord is saying, hey, hey, you have a work to do. And I think that's really important because sometimes this happens to us with our callings or with our parenting jobs. We're so overwhelmed that we stop moving. We become paralyzed and the Lord will constantly nudge you to be like, it just get started. I know you're not going to do it perfectly. When you go on a mission and you don't know the language and you know you're going to botch it all up, he says, I know all of those things. I'm, I've got you. I've set you to be a watchman, which means I'm going to give you the tools you need to pull it off. And so then he starts telling about the warnings of this calling and this added light and intelligence will come with responsibilities. His job will be to warn. And if he doesn't, then the blood of those who he didn't warn will be on his hands. That's really important doctrine because it teaches us something about the role of a prophet, that their job is to warn, and if they choose not to warn, then the consequences fall on them. It's the same thing that happens with parents. If we choose not to teach our children the doctrines of the kingdom, like we learned about in Doctrine and Covenants, those sins can fall on our heads. It's, it's a very clear warning. We're going to see it further in a few more chapters, but he invites him to step into this calling as shaky and as uncertain as he probably feels 
invites him to arise and go forth. That's in verse 22, where Jeremiah had to go to a potter to learn a lesson. In this situation, Ezekiel has to go to the plains because there isn't a temple for him to go hear the voice of the Lord. So he finds another spot. He finds a plain. And in that plain, he teaches Ezekiel about the risks that are at play for him. So he talks about how there's people who are coming. They're going to be violent. They're going to want to destroy him. And so he quiets him. Physically, he, he won't be able to speak for a season because the dangers are too intense. And as a missionary mom, or I guess a former one, actually, I'm a missionary mom right now with Jeff, but like where you have those moments where you're afraid for your kids, that their safety might be in jeopardy or things might not go well. I love this piece because I think the Lord does this with missionaries and He does this with mission presidents. He finds ways to help them be safe. And that's critical doctrine for Ezekiel and for every missionary mom heart out there. So hopefully that will teach you a little bit. Now we're going to jump a little bit further all the way up to 33. You're going to see the theme of the watchman carry through into chapter 33. I read this great talk from Elder Gong. It's in the notes, but he basically said that a role of a prophet is to seek after the one and take care of the 99 at the same time. (laughs) And that's sort of what you see in this guidance to Ezekiel, that in addition to warning those who are deep in sin and that he'll be held accountable if he doesn't warn them, he's also accountable for teaching the righteous, for for teaching those who are doing okay. This was interesting to me from a parenting perspective, because I think in callings and in our parenting, sometimes we're so fixated on the trouble kid or the troubled spot in our callings that we don't do as good of a job taking care of those who are doing well. And what I think it's in chapter three, but what he says basically is what happens is if the righteous stop getting taught well, then they might fall into sin. And if they fall into sin because we neglected to teach them, then that's on our heads too. (laughs) And it's just this profound warning to me that I need to do both. That doesn't mean I'm supposed to exhaust myself. I'm supposed to, you know, use the Spirit and focus where I can, but it does mean I need to constantly be taking care of the whole flock. And that's Ezekiel's invitation too. There is constant warnings about, don't take your eye off the ball. (laughs) This is ridiculous, but it reminded me of Titanic, you know? You know the movie Titanic when the guys who are up in the, I don't know what they call it, like the crow's nest or whatever, and they're supposed to be watching for icebergs and they're distracted by Kate and Leo that are, or whatever their character names are. And so then they like look back at the sea and then they see an iceberg. That's what he's trying to warn Ezekiel about. He's saying like, you, you need your eye on the field or on the flock. That's what I've called you to do. And then he has this really great guidance. This is an 11. He says, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That is something that is, it's easy to mix up in the Old Testament because sometimes when you read about Jehovah and this God of the Old Testament and the destruction that ensues, especially in those first five books of the Old Testament, you sometimes start to wonder if, if he is okay with destruction. And this verse, and there's another one in chapter 18, teaches us profoundly that he gets no joy from destruction or death of the wicked. He wants every single soul to come home, every single one. And so we need to teach that. As we teach this doctrine, we need to help people understand that he doesn't take life lightly. He doesn't take sin and destruction lightly. He doesn't even take punishment lightly. He wants his children home. So he will use every tool at his disposal to help them change. And that's what you're going to see in the verses. So, he talks about how they may not be delivered, that he can't deliver the righteous in their sins. In fact, one of the interesting things I learned, this is around like 13 and 14, that he's talking about the wicked. There is this great definition for about that phrase, the wicked. We tend to think that phrase means like you've committed really gross, atrocious sins. And I'm sure that can apply there. But generally in the Old Testament, at least what Joseph Fielding Smith said, is that wicked just means those who have not repented or received the gospel. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you've done anything horribly wrong or at least turned against the light you have. For some people, it will mean they've just never heard the gospel and never had a chance to come forward. In, in scriptural terms, that's what wicked means. So don't, don't read these two black and white. I think there's a lot of gray in the middle. Um, but he invites them to turn. And he basically says, those who have stored up righteousness— if they then turn to wickedness, all that righteousness they thought they stored up doesn't help them. And I think it's a really interesting, especially because I teach YSAs, that it's really tempting. I think, well, I served a mission and I did a lot of good works. And so therefore I might be able to take a, a you know, sabbatical from my <laughs> church attendance. You see it, especially at that age where 
they start to think that, well, they've done enough good and they'll get back to it eventually and they're just going to take some time off. I think we do this as adults too. And that's the warning is it can't be stored. The same way I can't like do all my workouts on Monday and then not do anything the rest of the week. It, my body doesn't work that way. I need this daily strengthening. And so that's what he's warning about. What I love is that it also offers the flip side. So this is around 14 and 15. He says, if there is a wicked person, remember someone who hasn't heard the gospel or hasn't repented, if they turn, then all of their sins are not mentioned. It, it works. There's two sides to this coin. And I love the doctrine behind it. It's so merciful. I even love that it says they're just not mentioned because it reminds me of a, any kind of loving relationship I have. You know, with my husband, for example, he knows all of my flaws, all my weaknesses, all my bad mistakes of the past. They're just not mentioned. And I think that's how the Lord is. He knows us. He knows exactly where we've been and the mistakes we've made, but they're not mentioned and they don't factor in to his love for us or the way he treats us. That's what he's promising those who are have repentant hearts. Um, so he invites them. He also warns that some of us are not going to be happy with that. This reminded me of the parable of the laborers of the vineyard. Basically, he's saying, as people turn and repent, they have every blessing. They have every opportunity because their hearts are changed. It's kind of like what you see in the New Testament when the Lord offers someone like the woman taken in adultery. In that moment, as long as he, as long as she turns in that moment and changes her ways, which she does, we know that from the Joseph translation, then she and that moment is clean before him. So he says, go that way and sin no more. And there will be some of us who won't like that very much. As we see people who turn, we will have a tendency to be like the Pharisees to say, well, what about her whole lifetime of mistakes? Don't those count against her? And what the Lord is saying is, she turned. She is not the same person anymore. Her heart is new. And that's how the Lord judges. In fact, that's what he says in 20. I will judge everyone after his ways. He's the only one that can know where that woman taken in adultery's heart is. The Pharisees can't tell. The scribes can't tell. We can't tell. That's why we have this incredible all-seeing judge who can tell where your heart is. So it doesn't matter how many years of backtracking or backsliding you've had. If your heart is in the right place, he will see it. And the same thing goes for the opposite. No matter how many years of righteousness you've had, if your heart right now is hard and turned against the prophets and turned against the doctrine, you lose all that, all that growth. You, you will begin to backslide. And I love that he teaches both. There's this great quote in the notes that talks about, I can't even remember who said it. Maybe it's in my margins. No, I didn't write it down. But he basically says that you can't burn the bridge of mercy that you expect to cross over yourself. So anyone who refuses mercy to others burns that bridge that they're going to need to cross over into exaltation. And that's what I think the parable of the laborers of the vineyard talks about. It's that you're worried about the wrong things. Don't worry about how many hours they've labored in the vineyard and how many you've labored. All of it is fair and we have an ultimate judge and we need to worry about ourselves and no one else. So that's what you'll see in that first half of 33. When you flip the page, it gets a little deeper. This is where he talks about what's going to come, that there is this guy who escaped from the destruction of Jerusalem, and he comes to wherever Ezekiel is and tells them about the destruction that's happened. Because remember, Ezekiel gets carried off before the temple is burned and everything gets destroyed. So he's in one of those earlier waves. What's interesting to me is it says that Ezekiel knew about the destruction the night before. So he gets this vision about how bad the land is and how desolate it is the night before this other person comes and tells everybody else about it. So again, prophets see farther, they see clearer, and they see early in the morning. And that's what happens with Ezekiel. He sees things in vision about what's happening in Jerusalem. And then somebody else comes as a second witness to say, I saw it with my own eyes and Ezekiel's right. He is a prophet of God. And that's kind of what happens. So you learn about the desolation and you learn about how they'll react. One of my the most interesting parts, I would say, is at the very end, because this is where, maybe because this messenger has come and verified Ezekiel's words, but it, people are going to start to listen to Ezekiel, but they're not listening for the right reasons. It's fascinating. It's around 31. It says, they'll hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth, they show much love, but their heart goeth after, after covetousness. And then 32, and lo, thou art unto them as a lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear thy words, but they do them not. There are so many great quotes in the notes about this kind of hypocrisy that we all 
tend to have moments where we get casual in our discipleship, where we maybe want to appear less devout than we maybe even are. I think you see this a lot with youth. Have you ever tried to sub for a Sunday school class and they act like they don't know any answers and they're disengaged completely and you know they know? <laughs> that there, There's a warning in that for us that we need to learn from those mistakes. We need to watch our discipleship. We need to stand on holy ground and speak what we know to be true because that's where the power is. Otherwise, like these children, we will backslide. And that takes you to the end of 33. The children of Israel didn't just stumble into this captivity. They were basically led here by teachers who led them astray. Remember, the big issue they were having is that they were worshiping false gods and turning to idols. That doesn't just happen on their own. That means their leaders and their teachers were leading them astray. And that's what you're going to read about in 34, that this beautiful flock of the Lord has now been scattered and damaged and torn apart. And they're, that's because the shepherds who were supposed to be caring for them didn't do their job. And just like Ezekiel just learned that he, with this prophetic calling, has accountability to God for being a watchman and sending out warnings, these shepherds had a duty to God to teach and to teach truth clearly and distinctly, and they didn't do it. And now the repercussions are the flock is damaged. I mean, you can see it in verse 4. They're diseased, they're sick, they're broken, they're driven away, they're lost. I circled all these words. They have been ruled with force and with cruelty. This next generation is suffering the consequences of this lack of leadership, and the Lord is telling Ezekiel to call these people to repentance. Basically, he talks about how they were scattered. This is in five. They were scattered because there is no shepherd, and they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. They're in a position where they haven't been taught, so they're very susceptible to all kinds of other things. I think that's the reason we're supposed to focus so much on home-centered learning, because my job is to fortify the sheep so that no matter what kind of teacher they have, they know who they are and they know that the scriptures lead to truth. That's why we can't just like, you know, pass off our kids to the young women's program or something. We need to, they need to know at home what is true because I am a shepherd of my little flock and that's my calling because otherwise they get pulled away. They become meat. Honestly, this phrase in my scriptures that the, those weak and vulnerable ones become meat for these creatures that are out prowling around, it felt like it felt like social media a little bit to me. I feel like sometimes on social media, there are people who are prowling, looking for youth who have a shallow level of testimony, and they are pulling them off to scarier places. And if I'm not there to help guide them, if I haven't taught them truth well enough, they will be pulled. They will be in a place of danger because I didn't do my job. So when I read these verses, I got all kinds of understandings from the Spirit, little little promptings, not necessarily when I was reading the verses themselves, but as I was thinking about them and going about my day, I got ideas about how I could do it better. How can I help my kids better? They're my little flock, and how can I fortify them better? So as you read these verses, be praying about whatever it is your flock is, whether it's your sisters you're supposed to minister to, or the brothers you're supposed to minister, minister to, or your calling, or whatever it is, be focused on your flock, and then ideas will come. Because what you're going to see in the rest of the verses is how the Lord basically says, you didn't do your job, so I'm taking over. Uh, he says in 10, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. There will be an accountability that will happen, and in the meantime, he's going to gather his flock. He, the Lord will do his own work. <laughs> and that's a profound message of every book of Scripture. He doesn't need us to accomplish his work. He invites us to help him accomplish this work because it will strengthen us, because we'll, our lives will be richly blessed in the process of being a part of this work. But he doesn't need us there. And this is what those verses say. Behold, I, even I, this is 11, will both search out my sheep and seek them out. In 12, I will seek out my sheep and I will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered. 13, I'll bring them out from the people. I will gather them out from the countries. I will bring them to their own land and feed them. In fact, a lot of these verses talk about bringing them to their own place. It almost sounds like when, when we hear about refugees and how the church cares for refugees and invites us to care for refugees, that we're supposed to bring them to a place where they can have their own space and have their own nourishment and their own jobs and have dignity. That's what the Lord is promising, that His people will, again, because of His work, 
have dignity and they won't have to worry anymore. So from like 22 all the way through the end of the chapter in 31, you're going to see how he gives them this dignity as these spiritual refugees and physical refugees in this case, what he offers. In 24, I'll be the Lord their God. It's almost like when I read these verses, I picture the Good Samaritan. You know, it's, he doesn't just help the man on the side of the road. He picks him up. He takes him to a place of safety. He offers to pay for what is needed. He offers to check back in. That's how we care for those who are spiritual refugees. And anyone we know who's going through a big repentance process or needs bolstering in whatever way, we can take these tips and apply it to them. I'm going to give them a place to dwell safely in the wilderness. That's in 25. In 26, he promises that he'll shower down blessings on those who come to him, that the fruits will yield their increase so they'll have ample food to eat as they're regrouping and getting their footing again, that they won't be subject to heathen anymore, that they will dwell in safely. That's in 28. They won't be afraid. Don't you think that's a huge piece of having dignity is knowing you don't need to be afraid because you have this powerhouse of the Lord on your side? He says he will plant them in a place of renown, and then ultimately in 30 and 31, they shall know that I, the Lord, am their God, and I am with them. Remember, that's Ezekiel's overarching message. God is with us in exile. He was with us in Jerusalem. He will be with us in the wilderness or wherever we are. God is with us, and we need to be with God. So if we take that opportunity, then we get what we have at C in 31, and ye are my flock. And the flock of my pasture are men, and I am your God, saith the Lord God. That's the profound promise of being part of this covenant Zion community, that they will be one with him in a place of safety and peace. And that's a pretty powerful message to teach if you're Ezekiel and you're talking to everyone who is in bondage. Um, That's a powerful vision of the future. Ezekiel's revolutionary side comes out in chapter 36 because the the same way I picture the founding fathers seeing all the hard parts of the revolutionary war, but trying to rally the troops to say like, I know we're in a mess and it's going to be so worth it if we act, if we do things that we're supposed to do, we can make big changes. And that's what Ezekiel's focusing on. So in 36, he talks about the desolation, the derision, the shame that they're bearing and how that will shift So if you look in 8, it talks about how there will be a time when the time will come that they can change. This is, there will be a time when the field is white and ready to harvest. It ties in with TNC 4. And he says how it's going to happen. For behold, this is 9. For behold, I am for you and I will turn unto you and ye shall be tilled and sown. This is the Lord speaking. He's saying, I am for you. I have always been for you. Jason says this all the time when we're talking to Jack. He's like, I'm team Jack. (laughs) Especially when we have hard things to say to Jack or, you know, consequences. We're team Jack. (laughs) We we don't do anything unless we think it's for your good. That's basically what he's saying here is, I'm team Israel. I want you to be successful. The only way for that to happen is if I can till this ground and sow it. I need to uproot all that hard baked in dry land and flip it over and expose it to the nutrients. What I love about this reference is it reminds me of Alma 32, where he says, you need to give place for a portion of my work. You know, if you picture a pot that's got hard packed soil that's been there all winter long, and you got to take some of that soil out to make room for the seed that's going to go in there. And that's not a comfortable process. The soil is probably nice and warm and comfortable. And then you take it out and put in this hard, shiny, cold seed. It's not a comfortable exchange, but he promises it's worth it because basically what he offers is, I will multiply you. This is where you start to see the Abrahamic covenant promises coming back, that in the last days, they'll have that. In fact, I love what it says in 11. It says, I will do better unto you than at your beginnings, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. There's a big promise that that Zion that will come will be even grander than what they saw with King David in Jerusalem, that they will, it'll be better than the glorious visions of Moses or of Noah. It will be better. Trust in the miracles that are coming. When you go a little further, you see he talks about how they got into this mess. Just like a good parent, he never lets the children of Israel forget how they got here. And I don't think Ezekiel is trying to beat them over the head with their sins. What he's trying to say is, don't forget, we've been down this road. It's the idol worshiping and profaning his name that got us into this mess. So we need to be watchful of that. 
We do that as parents all the time. But then he talks about why they're forgiven. It's not necessarily because they earned it <laughs> or because they've made mighty changes. What has happened is he's having pity on them for his holy name. The Lord loves his people and he loves the work that they can represent and he will have pity on them. I think a big piece of this physically is he also needs to set the stage. I mean, they need to go back to Jerusalem because that's where you know Jehovah as Jesus Christ will eventually be born. So I think there's some mercy and pity just because we got to get things moving. There's work to be done. And so he talks about his holy name. In 23, I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen. He's going to purify and cleanse, especially in the latter days, there will be a mass conversion that needs to happen. And that's what you see when you go a little bit further down. So he will talk about bringing them into their own land in 24 and then cleansing them in 25, cleansing them of all their idols and their filthiness. And then 26 is this epic, epic truth bomb verse. It says, and a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. If you remember from, there's some conference talks about this, since we have so many heart surgeons in our general authority line, there's a great one about having a heart transplant. Do you guys remember that talk where we have to take care of our transplanted hearts? I think the same thing happens as we've been talking about missionaries going into these foreign lands. This mighty change of heart happens. It happens in our callings too, but for missionaries who go to a new land and then instantly love the people, even those who are mean, you know, like you just have a, it's not love like, I love them the way I love my parents. It's love like, I feel I feel like you're part of my flock and I want to take care of you. I want to nourish you. I want to heal you. I want to feed you. That's the new heart. That's the new promise. But we have to care for it. We have to engage in the work so that our newly transplanted heart doesn't get rejected by our body. You can go in and see all that in the notes, but I love the promise that you see that he, in 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. When you allow that mighty change to happen, you change. Your actions change because your heart is different. That's why I think when we fixated our kids' attentions on for strength of the youth and say, like, where is your heart? Make decisions about your outward appearance based on how you feel about God and how you know He feels about you. It's all about this, this concept of teach them true doctrines and they will govern themselves. That's what 27 teaches me. In 28, he takes a little further and he says, ye shall be my people and I will be your God. That connection point where we are his people and he is our God happens because we have a new heart and because we acted on the new heart. We are now acting as he would have us act, which makes us children of God. That's that's the connection. It's not that we're never his, it's that now we are covenantally his and that's a different level of connection. So then you see the promises lay out in 30. I will multiply the fruit of the tree. I, you'll remember your evil ways. This is an interesting one because he talks about how they won't be ashamed. They won't be confounded. Um, they will be able to change. I think it's interesting in the repentance process because sometimes we can still remember our mistakes. And the purpose of that is to invite us to change. Anytime I bring up with my kids past mistakes, it's not to push them down. It's to say, hey, just a heads up, remember, we know where this road goes. And that's what happens with the children of Israel as well. Again, in 34, he promises this desolate land will be tilled. I love what you see in 35. He basically says, other people will see this land and say, wow, is this the same place? You know, the same way when I drove through that burned out forest and I couldn't believe how lush and green it was. That's what they're saying in 35. This land was desolate and has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and inhabited. And then 36, I have a big star next to this one. Then the heathen that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, build ruined places and plant that which was desolate. What I love about this is this is one of the beautiful blessings of repentance. That it doesn't just change your whole life and you get planted and you grow in a place that once was desolate. It's that people around you see that change. Those who don't believe that that's possible see that change, and then they say, oh, if it worked for her, maybe it can work for me. That's why we have to testify to each other. It's why we have to share our hope in change, because it motivates others. And then the resulting blessing is you become part of this holy flock that he mentions at the very end in verse 38. 
Guys, I had no idea how much I love chapter 37. I've always loved 47, but you do not want to miss chapter 37. This is where Ezekiel sees the Valley of Dry Bones. And you would think that would not be a super inviting chapter, but it's so good, you guys. Okay, basically he has kind of an object lesson play out for him. He's in a vision and he sees this big valley full of dry bones. That's in verse 1. And then he has to go all the way around and survey it. So he, he has to get a really good view of how bad things are. And then in three, he's invited to answer a question. So this is when the Lord says, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. <laughs> I don't know if this, this is Ezekiel saying like, I have no idea. Or if this is him saying like, how about you tell me the answer? <laughs> have you ever had that with a professor where you're like, could you just answer that for me? I wonder if this is one of those moments where Ezekiel wants to believe that these bones can live again but it's a help thou mine unbelief moment. The visual that came into my mind as I was reading about these dry bones is Peter and the nets. So remember when he has that long night on the water and he catches no fish. And when he meets the Savior, the Savior basically says, go a little ways out and put your net on the other side. And Peter's basic response is, there are no fish. <laughs> I've had this experience many times. I gave a talk on this once at church, but I felt this way with come follow me. Uh, when the prophet came out, we went to our church and he said, we're going to shift to home-centered learning. And my basic response was, you don't understand. I've been fishing here all night. There are no fish here. <laughs> because that's how I felt about our family's scripture. Like, it wasn't that it was bad. I just kind of felt like I wasn't reaping any rewards from it. And I couldn't, I couldn't quite get behind it. So when he was like, the Sabbath is going to be a delight and you're going to have all this joy. Uh, to me, it was this valley of dry bones or this empty net and an empty sea. And I just didn't believe. But I love this invitation where the Lord says, do you believe this can happen? And as soon as you shift. So for me, 2019, that first year of Come Follow Me was terrible. <laughs> I didn't do very well. The kids didn't do very well. And then 2020 is when I shifted. It's when this course started, when I was like, okay, I believe that this can happen. I believe it can be better. I want to let that desire work in me, so I'm going to try. And this is Peter throwing his net on the other side. And this is Ezekiel speaking prophecy to a valley of bones. I mean, the key, it's he's literally talking to no one, but that's what the Lord invites him to do. He says, prophesy unto these bones, talk to the bones, and tell them that they can be brought back, that breath will enter you. This is in five and ye shall live. In fact, say that their sinews are going to come, their flesh is going to come, all these, these bones are going to come back to life. Teach it to them. So Ezekiel has to speak to a valley of bones. It's Peter throwing his net out into water that he knows is empty of fish, and he is invited to act. It's this pivotal moment. So it's in verse 7. He says, so I prophesied as I was commanded. He speaks to a valley full of bones who will have no even ability to hear because the Lord commanded him to. It probably makes no sense to Ezekiel's mind. Like so many great moments in all of scripture where there's no rational reason mortally why this makes sense. And then something happens. I loved this piece. So in the middle of seven, and there was a noise. Behold, a shaking and the bones came together, bone to his bone. This is a, you know that, moment where like a Jedi finally figures out how to move things with his mind. This is that moment. For Peter, it's like he puts the nets down and then he can feel the boat creak. This happened for me with Come Follow Me. You guys, within the first like month, I could feel the boat creaking. I didn't see a boat full of fish yet. That, that took a long time. But I could feel something happening in a sea that I would have guaranteed was empty. And that's the promise of this Valley of Dry Bones. Then the Lord invites him to act again, and he says, okay, now build on that. Invite the winds to come and breathe the breath of life into these bodies that have been created. And so he does that. He commands and prophesies to the winds that they will come. And then the result happens. They, they arise. This army of people stands up and arises. Remember, this is a vision. This is not literally happening. But it's this promise of, well, one, I think it's an incredible prophecy about resurrection and what the resurrection will be like, that that is actually possible and can happen to those who believe. But more profoundly, I think it's all about that the Lord loves to bring life to desolate places. This is a valley of bones that could not 
It, no one had ever done anything like this before to this size of group, and it can happen. If he can bring life back to a valley of bones, he can bring life to any of my valleys. That's what the Spirit taught me this week. And I've seen it, you guys. There's been times when I looked at my temple attendance and it felt like a valley of bones where I'm like, I'm getting nothing out of this. I don't understand it. I felt the same with family history where I was like, I, it's not for me. It's a valley of bones. And the moment you engage, you, it's what Elma taught. If you let that desire work in you, even just a, even if there's a hope to desire to believe and you let it work in you, he will come and he will help you and there will be a noise. There will be a shaking and it will be a profound change. But you have to act the same way Ezekiel did. And I just love that message. So you see that all throughout that first half that it's the Lord's hand that does this miracle. But because he invited Ezekiel to be part of it, Ezekiel gets to see it happen and be there firsthand. That's what he invites us to do in our lives too. And I just love it. To make this chapter even better, there's an object lesson that's built right into the verses. Starting around 15, you see, see the gear shift. So this is after the vision of the dry bones. And now he's on the street and he's invited to teach in this really peculiar way. So the Lord invites him to take two sticks. This is what we read about in the Book of Mormon, that there's going to be a stick of Judah and a stick of Joseph. And he's supposed to write those names on these sticks or scrolls or books or whatever they might be. And then he's going to combine them into one. But the part I loved about this, you guys, is in chapter 18. It says, And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these? This is the whole reason I teach in object lessons, you guys, so that I can be doing something crazy with fire in my kitchen, and my kids will wander over and be like, Mom, what are you doing? And then I can answer. And when I answer, I teach. I teach them the doctrine. So it's not like most of my object lessons, at least in our family, are happening in some fancy way. In fact, they never are. They happen to be when my kids wander into the room and say, Mom, why are you exploding things in our kitchen sink? That's why I do the weird object lessons. And that's what's working for Ezekiel too. Because it's not that first generation who's asking him. They haven't responded. But the children of that first generation notice. I love this piece of this story because they want to know, tell me more. Why are you combining those two sticks? And he, because he knows the doctrine and can teach it, says, let me tell you, at some point in the future, these two sticks, these, this is not just about the Bible and the Book of Mormon like we learn about it in the Book of Mormon. It's also the tribes coming back together. The stick of Joseph, or stick of Judah and the stick of Joseph used to be one big children of Israel under Jacob, right? They used to be one group, and then there was the division of the tribes after the three kings, and they've never been reunited again. So what Ezekiel is telling this next generation of young, revolutionary thinking people is that the Lord has promised that all of it will be gathered back together again. They will all be one. And in the Book of Mormon, we learned this is fulfilled through the Book of Mormon and the Bible coming together as one. We'll talk about this in the object lessons too, but I love that he teaches in this object lesson hoping to catch their eye because I feel like that's what I do all the time. And it just jumped out at me. But he promises that they'll be gathered. And then he tells them all the promises that come with the gathering. They'll have one king, that they'll have their own nation. If you look in 23, that they'll, they won't have idols anymore. They can set aside all the false traditions of their fathers and they can be a new generation. Remember, if you're talking to teenagers or, you know, younger kids who are, have been in bondage their whole lifetimes, to preach to them on the streets with this cool object lesson and say, I believe there will be a change. I believe you guys will help make that change happen. There will be a time when you'll have your own land. You won't be stuck under these kings. There will be a time when there will be cleansing and you'll have true doctrine and you can set aside all the false teachings of the other generations. He invites them that they will have a prince forever, that once they get back to their lands, they will never be taken away again. That The biggest one is in 26, that they will have an everlasting covenant of peace. These generations that probably worried about losing because the temple's destroyed, the ark is gone, everything, all those remnants of their past life are gone. They probably worried about their connection to God. And what Ezekiel can teach anyone who will listen is that everlasting covenant traveled with us. If you will embrace the truth, if you will come to God, that covenant can be yours. Those promises came with us if we would just hold on to them. That's his big message, and it carries all the way through chapter 37.
I think it's powerful that almost every conference, the last message from the prophet is about the temple. In this latest conference, he spoke about the power of the temple, bringing families together, and then announced all these new temples, especially all the ones in Mexico City. You, you just wonder what's going to happen to that city because they have all these temples coming. And the reason I wonder that is because of what I studied in Ezekiel 47. This is where he has another vision, and this time the vision is of a river. So it's a river that comes from under the threshold. So they have the temple doors, and then under those doors, between the doors and that little narrow passage where like the stone would be, a river comes out. Now, I don't know how wide those temple doors could possibly be, but you can't have a big surging river coming out of such a small space. But what happens in this vision is the river gets bigger and deeper as it goes out from the temple. There are so many cool spiritual parallels in this object lesson that he's seeing. And so he talks about the distance. So there's another person in this vision and they measure out a thousand cubits or about 17, 1800 feet. And then they have him test the depth of the waters. And at the first test, it's up to his ankles. And then he goes another thousand cubits and then it's up to his knees. Remember this skinny passage of water that came out from under this tiny window of a threshold is now deep and it's coming up to his knees and then to his loins and then he gets to the point where it's so deep and so broad that he can't pass it it has to be you have to swim across it i, I love the words it's in five afterward he measured a thousand and it was a river that i could not pass over for the waters were risen waters to swim in I've loved this verse for 20 years because of what I learned from Michael Wilcox in Israel. He took us to Masada where you can see nothing but desert forever. And on the side of Masada, there is this big sea and it looks beautiful and blue, but it's the Dead Sea and has absolutely no life. And you can tell that because there's literally no green in any direction. And he talked about how this is the place where this that's what's going to be healed. In fact, if you look further down in the verses, you can see in 8 that he talks about that river is going to end up at the Dead Sea and it's going to heal the Dead Sea, which is powerful because, you guys, the Dead Sea is like the lowest place literally on the planet. It's worse than the Great Salt Lake. It has no life whatsoever. You can float in it. We did. And it's this, there's no life there, but he promises that, that this river that gets deeper and deeper will bring life. The way he taught it at the time was talking about our temple attendance, that as we continue to go to the temple, our own enjoyment of it and what we gain from it gets deeper as we go. That at first you go and the, the goodness is to the ankles and you have enough to keep you going and then you keep going and the goodness is to the knees and eventually they become waters that you can't pass over, waters to swim in. And I love that visual because I think it's really helped me to be persistent in my temple attendance as my own testimony has grown. I was able to go with one of my YSAs to the temple just this last week and answer her questions. And I can't tell you what a sweet thing that was for me to stand in the celestial room with someone and answer questions because for a long time, I didn't have those answers. But they came over the course of my you know 20 years of temple attendance as I continued to wade in those waters and let the waters rise in my heart. I just think there's so much power in that understanding. But the beauty is it doesn't end there. So the person who's with him says, have you seen this? And he directs his attention to something else. So this is around verse six. This is when he gives him a focus and he says, look at the banks of the river. What's happening on the banks? And this is where Ezekiel sees trees, big, lush, verdant fruit trees that are growing up in this desert place along the banks of the river and a multitude of fish. Remember, it's coming from the temple, it's ending in a sea that is dead and there's this multitude of fish. And there's so many cool ways to interpret that. The Rasbans have a great video that we'll watch in the object lessons to talk about this idea of the fish coming and the blessings that come. I do love what you read in the verses. We've, we've studied a lot of this in previous things. I, even in Jeremiah, you know that chapter that I taught you guys, it's, um, oh, I didn't write down, but it's in the notes, where he spoke about trees that are planted by water and how I, need, I needed to know that I could still produce fruit even in a time of drought. That's what he's promising here as well, that if you stay right along the edges of those banks and you let your roots sink deep down into that beautiful celestial water that the temple offers, that you will yield fruit. And it's this epic promise because you can see in 12 the blessings that you'll have meat you'll have food that you can eat in fact i love at the end where it talks about there's going to be this new fruit and it says and the fruit thereof shall be for meat and the leaf thereof for medicine this what we gain from attending the temple and planting ourselves right next to that living water 
is that we produce fruit that can never run out. It's not seasonal. There's no end to its bounty. That's the promise of the temple. And I think it invited me, the Spirit, as I was studying, brought to mind these different blessings that my family has experienced because I've kept myself planted in the temple, especially times when I didn't necessarily feel like I understood the temple very well. By staying planted there, I found incredible blessings that bless not just my life, but those around me. And that's what he's offering here, that you'll see all of those things. And I just think the visuals are so good. The idea of having waters to swim in. I also think it's really powerful. If you look at 11, he says, But the miry places thereof and the marshes shall not be healed, and they shall be given to salt. I, to me, this was like a, you can't live on borrowed light. You need to plant yourself at the temple. You can't trust in my testimony of the temple. You have to make your own. You need to go. You need to participate so that you can get this nourishment for yourself. And then the end of the chapter wraps up with an understanding about when, in those latter days, when they get the promised land back, how they'll need to divide it and how they'll need to be open-armed to all the strangers who will want to live among them, that those who want to be part of the covenant will need to be welcomed in and given an inheritance just like everyone else. And there's so much power in tying the visuals of the temple to the visuals here. But I just feel like the biggest message I got out of 37 is this promise that everything that the river touches will live. It's around verse 8 and 9. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the river shall come, shall live and there should be a very great multitude of fish. That's a promise you can rest on, that as you come closer to the temple, as you participate in the ordinances, as you take the strength you get and take it out of the temple, that that nourishment will feed more than just you and more than just your family. It will spread, it will deepen, it will change the whole landscape of your life. I feel like so that's what President Nelson taught, and it's what the prophet Ezekiel taught as well. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.